0: This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host for this week, Paul Jaisley, filling in for Mike Rappin. But I'm not alone. I am joined by two anthropomorphic waterfowl trapped in a world they never made, Tia Vasiliou. Hello. And Kate Lamphere.
1: I am an anamorph.
0: <laughs> I, I was going for the Howard the Duck reference. I probably just, I hopefully didn't go over everybody's head. So uh, there go. Well, I was go. thinking Swan um, Lake. Oh, well, that works too. Uh, um, either one. Uh, Well, I'm glad you're both here because uh, today's topic is one that I feel sort of woefully unqualified to discuss. And that is, we'll be talking about Shakespearean adaptations in comics. Uh, We've got some great picks to discuss. We have a whole conversation about that. Uh, But before we get to that, we have two legally mandated questions I'm forced to ask before we go any further. And that's, how have you been and how have comic books been? Let's start with you, Kate.
1: I've been good. Kind of winter's beginning and I'm trying to stay warm. It's not super easy, but I'm I'm managing. I read a, a an oversized book that I found at my library called The Leaning Girl and this is by Francois Schouten and Benoit Peters. Hopefully I pronounced that Close to correctly. <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the Obscure Cities series that they did together and has been um, a number of titles that are like very loosely connected um, and kind of go wherever they want to go. I, this is the only book in the series that I've read. This was a Bond SNA that was first published in 1987, and I can only describe it as like an experimental sci-fi which is a common theme amongst a lot of older Bond SNAs that I've read Mm -hmm. and okay so there are three timelines in this book and two of them look like woodcut prints which is very cool and one Mm -hmm. of those timelines focuses on this girl who goes through like this um this roller coaster that malfunctions and she sees all these different scenes that she's not like supposed to see at this normal ride at this normal place. And she comes out of it and she's leaning like at a 30 degree angle and everyone's like, you're doing it on purpose for attention and she's not treated very well. And then the other timeline focuses on these um, kind of unhinged scientists and they don't really seem connected at first and then the third Mm -hmm. timeline is actually photographs like they're not it's not like comic art it's it's pictures and he's painting scenes that he sees and visions on the wall of an old house in the middle of nowhere that he's bought like explicitly for this purpose this is already like a crazy thing to try to explain (laughs) they all come together like all these timelines come together at the end of the book um and I don't know. It just kind of gets very unpredictable, really, which is a great compliment. I mean, I feel like I've read a lot. I I was an English major. I feel like I can kind of predict where stories are going. Not this one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, geez. Uh, This kind of sounds fascinating. So you said it's oversized. Like, how big is this book? I'm trying to visualize it.
1: Like a 12 by 18, maybe. Oh, geez. Wow.
0: That sounds pretty amazing actually. I love the idea of playing with different uh, artistic media in comics this, between the the woodcut and the photographs. Kinda of sums up my alley. So I'll have to track this one down.
1: Yeah, I I don't know. Like the the Obscure Cities series has other books in it and if I run into one, like, I don't know if I would pick it up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I (laughs)
1: can't tell you if I liked this book. I mean, there, there's like the, at the end this older man and this teenage girl kind of have like a little bit of a romance, which felt really weird. Mm -hmm. Um, and kind of forced, I'm like, why is this in here? Um, but the, the foreword of the book mentions that this, this teenage character Mary that leans is kind of like a, a repeating character throughout this Obscure Cities series. And I'm really interested to see how she impacts other stories. So yeah,
0: hmm,
1: I might pick another one up. We'll see.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, again, it sounds interesting. Sometimes I like to just, you know, you know, struggle with books that if I like, finish reading a comic and think, I don't know if I like that, that can sometimes be like a good compliment to me in a way. Because it's like you kind of engage it with the way that you wouldn't normally. It's I read yeah. a lot of comics that are fine, but something that kind of pushes back in a way like that is kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, Trust exactly.
0: Me, one of the books, yeah, one of the books I'm going to talk about for my picks is a book that I thought looked lovely, but I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened in it. And that's kind of <laughs> nice sometimes. So, but I'll save that. Yeah.
1: yeah, I I read this like a week ago and I still don't know if I liked it, but I keep thinking about it. So, it must have done
2: something, right?
0: There you go. Yeah.
1: Tia, how, what have you been reading?
2: Well, I'm pretty excited because as regular listeners might know from my sort of sporadic appearances on the show over the last couple of years, I've just really been struggling to like get into reading uh, lately. Well, I mean, I say lately, like for the past couple of years, the the, the pandemic has really done a number on my attention span uh, when it comes to reading and, and it's just kind of been a, a slog to get it back. So one yeah. thing I've been doing is like, I really just have to like get TikTok off of my phone. I think that probably isn't helping. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was really excited because I actually did read a book from Image that I was really excited about. And I was like, oh, finally, something that like grabs my attention again. So uh, that book is Two Graves, uh, number one. This is by either Genevieve Valentine or Genevieve Valentine. I'm not sure which pronunciation mm-hmm. um, this writer goes with. So we'll have to look into that. Uh, and the art is by Ming Doyle and Annie Wu. Uh, love oh, them. Okay. Like big fan. Yeah. And then it just keeps getting better. Colors by Lee Lowridge. Like, come on. Mm-hmm. And lettering by Aditya Bidikar. So like stellar creative team here. Like, could not it's ask an for an all-star
0: better. list. All-star list. Yeah.
2: I mean, yeah, so this just this book has all of the like super particular things that I want in a comic book. The artwork is gorgeous. The story is kind of like modern mythology, and there's like a really dark mystery at its center. I I just love books like that that feel kind of uh timeless and weird and dark and are beautiful to look at. So, high level mm-hmm. The story is about a young woman named Amelia who seems to, like, know things about dead people. And she is traveling in the, like, you know, west, southwest part of the United States. And there's this mysterious man with her whom it is pretty strongly implied that he's death or, like, a reaper of some kind. He, like, has this veiled face Uh, The art, like the the visual is really cool on him and he has a handprint on his neck and and Amelia doesn't remember how they met, but she suspects over the course of this first issue that it has something to do with the handprint on his neck, that maybe that's from her. And um, there's moments in the story where we switch over to like a retelling of the Persephone myth, which... Hmm you know, hello, like, okay, that (laughs) seems like a clue as to what's maybe going on. So love that. And Mm -hmm. it's really poetic. I love those snippets because I've never really focused on this one aspect of the Persephone myth before, but it talks a lot about Persephone's hunger. Like Mm -hmm. for those of you who are maybe unfamiliar with that myth, like Persephone is kidnapped by Hades and taken to the underworld. And, um, he, you know, Demeter, her mother works out a deal with, with the gods, with Zeus, whoever that, like, she can come back but only like Hades has to give her back, but only if she had not eaten any food from the underworld. And by the time the messenger gets there to, to tell her she had already eaten six pomegranate seeds. That's why pomegranates are, are like associated with Persephone. And so that's why we have winter because for six months out of the year, she has to spend that time in the underworld with Hades and her mom is, the is Demeter and is sad. And so like all of the fields are, are, you know, it's winter whatever anyway um mm-hmm. but yeah so like i've never actually thought of this before but like in the in the comic it goes into like imagine how hungry she was And then she ate the six seeds. But then it kind of like builds on that. Like imagine if no one had, like imagine if the messenger hadn't come, like what more would her her voracious appetite have like taken? Like how, (laughs) and in a lot of like Persephone is a really kick-ass character in mythology. Like you don't fuck with her. Hades just kind of stands back and lets her like, you know, be the hard ass of the relationship. And so (laughs) that's really interesting to me, right? Like, I don't know. I just yeah. I I I can't wait to see what they do with that little snippet that little pomegranate seed of information. And so in the story, um Amelia has her mother's ashes and um, she she's like wanting to travel to the coast to scatter them in the ocean. And so that's kind of the narrative framework. That's why she's traveling. And I think that's also really interesting because, of course, Demeter, Persephone's mother, is really important to the myth. So there's just a lot of layers of like these parallels are going to be important. But yeah, so I think that there's going to be a new – some kind of new lens or twist on the like Demeter mother protection. I don't know. Like I just – like I said, for the first time in a really long time, I'm really invested, I'm really engaged. This book has everything.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing. I'm kind of surprised this flew under my radar. This is the first time hearing about it, but with that creative team and what you've described, like I'm gonna have to track this down. So this just started and it's still continuing right now?
2: Yeah, yeah, It's okay. it came out I think um, last month sometime, this first okay. issue, so um, highly recommend, it's really great.
0: Yeah, that sounds amazing, cool.
2: How about you, Paul, what have you been reading?
0: Um, you know, I'm in a similar boat to you. I have a hard time making myself sit down and just read comics. You know, um, it always is strange when the one hobby that you have feels like a chore whenever you try to do it, but I'm uh, getting better at that. I think the, the impending Michigan winter will force me to stay home and, uh, stay warm and, uh, do a lot more reading in my apartment here. But, um, I've been slowly making my way through the big stack of comics I got from last time I went to the shop and, uh, two books I want to talk about mainly because of the artwork in both these books. I have a last issue and a first issue. The last issue is uh, Defenders Beyond number 5. This is the last issue of the miniseries uh, written by Al Ewing uh, with art by Javier Rodriguez, letters by Joe uh, Caramanga. And I really love the Defenders books that Ewing and Rodriguez have done. They've done two miniseries now. Um, each volume kind of focuses on a different team of Defenders from Marvel characters and in this book in particular, we see the team sent on a mission to sort of make it to the very ends of the, or the very beginnings of the Marvel universe as we know it. And it's like Ewing trying to explain the cosmology of the Marvel Comics universe using these obscure characters. So the Defenders, it's it's Blue Marvel, it's Tigra, uh, Loki, who's not a D-list character, you know, he's a big one, um, Taya, who's Galactus's mother, who I love because uh, she speaks like a Kirby character the entire comic. <laughs> And America Chavez, so it's an interesting team of people. All with, you know, it's a ragtag group, and they don't always get along. But in this issue, they basically reach uh, what is called the House of Ideas, which, of course, is a nickname that Marvel used in the '60s. And then uh, they meet the One Above All, who's essentially God, who's created this universe that they live in. And there's a moment in the story where the One Above All is defending this place and he or they send out a group of monsters to attack the defenders and he calls them the foundations and they're all the monsters that stan lee and jack kirby created and were publishing before fantastic four number one came out and it's like this it's kind of a throwaway scene but i love the idea that ewing saying like i'm not just telling a story about the defenders this isn't just about superheroes i'm talking about creativity and the marvel universe as a living, breathing." fictional entity. And it's just the whole book is a sort of celebration of that and the possibilities of storytelling. And it's aided by the fact that Javier Rodriguez is a stunningly great artist. This book is absolutely beautiful. The way that he uses the page layout to create a narrative tension. um, It's one of those books that every time I finish an issue, I just want to go back and reread it and kind of find all the little details I might've missed on first read. It's a book that requires you to kind of really focus and pay attention on the artwork itself Particularly the formal aspects, like the page layout and the panel shapes and all that. So, the beautiful book. It's, I'm, I'm hoping they do another series at some point. But it kind of sounds like Al Ewing did everything you want to do in these two series. Uh, but it's great stuff. As someone that really likes it when Marvel gets weird, this is some classic weird Marvel <laughs> stuff. And I really really enjoyed it. So
2: <laughs> yeah, that sounds cool. And Al Ewing is like the perfect writer to do that kind of weird oh, stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I I really hate to do these kind of comparisons because they're work is very distinct and unique but when i was reading this stuff it really reminded me of what you know grant morrison does with the dc cosmology like taking the dc characters some obscure characters using them to explore the nature of the dc universe as an entity it's again i think their sensibilities as writers are very different but they're coming from the same place of what they're attempting to do with these these series and stuff so it's kind of obvious why i might like that you know when ewing does it the other book I read was the first issue of another miniseries uh, from Marvel uh, Doctor Strange Fall Sunrise this is a uh, mini that just started and it's written and illustrated by Trad Moore with art by Heather uh, colors by Heather Moore and again talk about stunning artists with very distinct styles Trad Moore of course is best known for doing the um, the recent Silver Surfer black book for DC for Marvel sorry um, and this book is very similar it looks stunning like every page in this book should be reprinted as a blacklight poster for some hippies wall like it's all just the most psychedelic trippy artwork very sort of flat color style but it looks like the sort of 60s posters you'd see uh you know in head shops or you know music stores and stuff it has a very distinct style as far as the story goes i couldn't really tell you what happened here uh The short story, as far as I can tell, is that Doctor Strange wakes up in a strange alien world, and he's not sure how he got there or what he's supposed to do. He keeps hearing these voices talking to him, and he's kind of exploring, trying to figure out his place here. But the lack of like distinct narrative doesn't matter because everything looks just so lovely. I just I was pouring over every page of the book, looking at all the details, and the fact that Treadmore is able to kind of move from these widescape vistas of this alien world into these uh frantic fight scenes and kind of cut up the page into smaller panels where you get snippets of the action compared to the larger scape of the landscape it's a really 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 beautiful book it's kind of one of those books i wish was reprinted in or published magazine size on big paper so you can really just take it all in Um, and it's nice too because dr strange is a character that i've always wanted to like more than i do And I love the 60s stuff that Steve Ditko did because it feels very strange and psychedelic in a way. And and this book captures that completely. It's very clearly strange in the best possible way for a Doctor Strange book. So I cannot wait to see what the next couple issues of this are like.
1: Doctor Strange is a book that I've never actually read, but I'm intrigued by the character, at least from the movies. And I feel like I should check check out a book.
0: Yeah, again, I I really love the early six the six stuff from the sixties, the early Doctor Strange that Steve Ditko did because it is very strange, like it lives up to the name. Yeah, it's it's (laughs) unlike it's unlike Spider Man, it's unlike Fantastic Four, other stuff that was coming out from Marvel at the time. It's very trippy, and I love the fact that Marvel became popular among college students and hippies because they thought Kirby and Ditko were like you know, psychedelic ex- explorers. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, no, they're the straightest laced dudes imaginable. You know what I mean? But somehow they made artwork that that connected with, you know, uh, hippies and uh, the drug culture of the time.
1: Hmm. That's funny. Well,
0: those are the books that we read. And of course, we always have new books on the top of our pile. So I'm curious uh, to hear what you have next to read. Let's go back to you, Kate. What's on top of your pile for this upcoming week?
1: I keep seeing news about Know Your Station, number one. This is a okay. five-issue five limited series from Boom Studios, and the writer is Sarah Gailey, and the artist is Liana Kangas. And this is a book about... It's a sci-fi book. The ultra-rich live on a space station to avoid a dying Earth, and there's a killer on the loose, so it kind of follows the investigation to find the killer. Mm-hmm. And, like, so, so right away, this seems like kind of relevant. I've seen um, a couple of different pop culture stories kind of latch on to this idea of the ultra rich going to a space station. Um, But this Mm -hmm. like serial killer aspect is new. I like boom studios. I like sci-fi. Um, So this is kind of like uh, uh, a thing that I would be interested in reading, except um, the description says that it's especially macabre. And then it lists a bunch of other books from Boom Studios that are like bloodier than I usually like. Okay. So so I'm definitely going to give this a shot, but I might only end up reading the number one.
2: Liana (laughs) Kangas is great. So, you know. Okay, good. Yeah, there's that.
1: I I haven't like been reading a lot of Western fiction comics recently. I've really been leaning into manga and graphic nonfiction, and and it just hmm. seems very appropriate that a sci-fi book from Boom Studios. It's what's going to get me to pick up a Western comic again.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. And when you start start talking about space station and macabre, um, I just think of Event Horizon. So hopefully it's not that extreme. So that that movie. So we'll
2: find out. Yeah, <laughs> we'll find out. It makes yeah. me think of that book Southern Cross, the Becky Cloonan one oh yeah that was such a good book that was a great series yeah but uh, of course there were no ultra rich people there that they were like workers and frankly if there's like a serial killer um taking out the ultra rich out of space station i'm like oh let me break out the world's tiniest violin here (laughs)
0: yeah
2: (laughs) fair enough tia what are you excited for well um two graves number two comes out on December 14th (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Which is which is something I'm looking forward to. And I think I'll probably get it on New Comic Book Day, like which I haven't done in a long time. Like I haven't cared about New Comic Book Day in ages. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll get this as soon as it comes out. The description says Amelia and Death see Vegas, grab lunch and meet some friends who try to kill them. The road trip is going great.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, the fact that you're going to go get this on the day it comes out, release day is probably the most the biggest ringing endorsement a book can get at this point, right, Tia?
2: I don't know, there's just something about the trope of like the Persephone Hades dynamic that I love yeah. where it's like, sure. you know, the goth and his flowery birder wife. Like I just love that. <laughs> and I think I think that's where this is going. So
0: Yeah. Well, nice. I'll I'll see if I uh, my shop has a copy of number one next time I'm there to uh I wanna catch up on this. It sounds great. So
2: well, besides Two Graves number two, what are you picking up, Paul?
0: Um. Well, we got some people hanging out with us in the Discord, listening to us record live. So I want to mention what they're got on top of their piles. Uh, Jeff is going to read Judge Dredd Complete Cave Files number one. Welcome to Mega City One, Jeff. I'm so excited that someone's reading Judge Dredd. Uh, so enjoy that. Uh, Stephanie is going to be reading Blankets. Uh, Nick has Earth Divers number three, and Danny is reading Blue Beetle Graduation Day number one from DC. Um, and look. On the top of my pile for the foreseeable future is going to be this massive uh, Love and Rockets box set that I picked up last month. Um, so if you didn't see it on social media when I posted about it or on the Discord, uh, Fantagraphics released a giant box set to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the comic Love and Rockets. And Love and Rockets: The First 50 collects those first 50 issues of uh, in a giant—I mean, literally—giant um, box set. This thing probably weighs about 40 pounds. It's 2,500 pages of comics. Um, and it's all stuff that I've read before, but I'm so glad to see it collected in this way because unlike the previous collections that they did, uh, for this, they basically reprinted all the issues in facsimile style. So you get the original cover plus the original like letter from the editor. Then you get all the letter columns from the readers. You get all the ads in every issue. So it's, you're basically like reading the original issues right in front of you in a more convenient form in a way. And it's really great too because it kind of gives you the... History of the comic as it existed at the time, right? It gives you the sense of how the comic grew an audience, how their art styles, how the Hernandez Brothers art style changed, how the comic became a pop culture sensation. So it's really less of the the comics themselves. And it's a celebration of uh, Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez, their work, the uh, labor of love that those first 50 issues are. Every time I pull it out to start reading it, though, I just start flipping through it and just admiring just how beautiful, re- beautifully reprinted it is. So it's hard for me to like actually sit down and read the comics. I'm just like, God, this is such a beautiful box set. It's like they did too good of a job uh, <laughs> with the design of it. So like, I got distracted from the actual comics. So yeah, I was I was very excited to pick this up from my shop last month. And uh, it's going to be on the top of my pile for the foreseeable future as I slowly make my way through some of my favorite comics of all time yet again. So there you go
1: really cool that they reprinted all the extra stuff that was in it i don't see that that very often with reprints yeah
2: exactly the way that you talk about it as an object makes me think of the like uh flexus art books that they used to make in like the the mid 20th century and how just like Yeah. yeah the it wasn't just about like what was what you were reading in the book, but like the books as objects themselves just were like in the way that you engaged with them as objects was so important
0: to the, to like their whole meaning. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, like I, I, I mentioned it when I was talking about it, but like there is something very like comforting about seeing it on my shelf. You know what I mean? Like I was debating whether I wanted to buy it or not. Cause again, I've read all this up before, but the actual having the physical object feels more like, it's an item, right? This represents so much work that my favorite cartoonists did, and some of the most important comics, you know, ever published, in my opinion. So the project. actual physical object of it is kind of like as important to me as what's contained in it. So, uh, lugging <laughs> it out of the comic shop and like putting it in the front seat of my car, and then putting the safety belt on it so it didn't fly <laughs> around when i was driving i was like this is something very special to me like this is more not just a comic like it's something else so i'm glad i actually bought it uh so uh, all that being said we're going to take a quick break here we'll be back with our main topic for this episode and that is again uh, shakespearean adaptations in comics we all have different ones to talk about and we'll be back in a minute today's topic, we are talking about comic book adaptations of literature. This is a topic we've discussed on previous episodes. We've talked about movies being adapted into comics, literature being adapted to comics. But today's discussion has a very specific focus, and that's the works of one William Shakespeare. Maybe you've heard of him. Probably the most influential writer uh, in English literature. His works have been adapted countless times into different media, including comics. And I think that's something that we kind of wanted to talk about is not just the adaptations themselves, but what makes his works so appealing uh, to being adapted. There's sort of these universal themes. That I think Shakespeare speaks to that make their way into a lot of pop culture. So someone like me, who's read probably two Shakespeare plays my entire life, one being Romeo and Juliet, which again, I also saw the movie Romeo plus Juliet when it came out. Uh, I probably read Hamlet at some point, but a lot of his stuff I know because of its ubiquity in pop culture. So that's something that we can talk about as well. So I'm going to stop rambling. I'm going to open up the floor. Uh, We all have different picks that we read or different books we read that are adaptations of Shakespeare's work. And I'm curious, Tia, tell us about the book you read that's an adaptation of Shakespeare.
2: Well, uh, this is actually one of my favorite books just full stop. So I was thrilled that we were going to get to talk about it on the show, which is Prince of Cats by Ronald Wimberly. It is absolutely beautiful. Like you have to have this book on your shelf. (laughs) It Truly, (laughs) like it is the most beautiful book. And I really think every English teacher who has Shakespeare in their curriculum should be using this book in their classrooms. It is Mm -hmm. that good. It's a modern adaptation of Romeo and Juliet told from Tybalt's perspective, Juliet's cousin. And it's set in 1980s New York. And like, yeah, the artwork, the colors, the character designs, the setting, like it's absolutely stunning Hmm. Uh, in the dialogue. It's mostly original dialogue because, of course, Tybalt is like a secondary character in the main play. But this is his story. Prince of Cats is his story. And so um, there are scenes where the dialogue is from the original play. And it's really seamlessly integrated into the original parts of with the with the original dialogue. And one of the reasons for that is that it's all in iambic pentameter, which I think is just fantastic.
0: Okay. Yeah.
2: You know, and I think also like having it in iambic pentameter, which is very rhythmic, it also lends itself really well to the um like there's a lot of hip hop culture that is a part of this adaptation. And so it just really, I think, um, strengthens that connection between like the modern adaptation and like the modern um, aspects that you can use when you're interpreting Shakespeare, that like iambic pentameter is basically just lyrics. Right. So we love
0: that. So do you think that the adaptation, do you think that changing the time and place of the original source material adds to it or is it that what makes it an interesting adaptation since it's so radically different from the time it was written
2: yeah actually so look as an art historian the the core of what we do to interpret artworks is compare and contrast right right and Mm -hmm. i would actually give the advice for anyone out there who if you for anyone who ever has to do an analysis of any art text movie anything if you're struggling to figure out what to talk about or how to like enter the work, pick any other random thing and do a compare and contrast because mm-hmm. you will find the core of each work in the com- compare and contrast. And so I think that the the ways that it is like adhering to the Shakespeare um you know like the family this general story like all of that it it actually all of all of that in the original shakespeare like it really gets underscored by the differences or the way that it is um kind of put through a modern lens the adaptation like the adaptation rather than the strict adherence to the original setting like that's what makes it good right and I think a lot of people, um, just from the color palette and the and like the modern aesthetic, I think a lot of people would compare this to the Baz Luhrmann Romeo plus Juliet mm-hmm. film, and they do that in the film too. So like in the in Prince of Cats, instead of um like you know f- traditional Italian Renaissance sword fighting, they use samurai swords, which is like really <laughs> awesome. And sure. but like in the Bas Luhrmann film they use guns right. so they brand the type of gun like there's a scene in the play where Lord Capulet says to Lady Capulet give me my longsword ho and which I always thought was really funny because you could take the word ho and put it in a modern <laughs> right. context that's much different <laughs> from like give me my longsword ho you know like the mm-hmm. we're Italian Renaissance but anyway um, so they actually brand the gun like the brand of gun is longsword and yeah. Yeah. so yeah. Like that's such a cool little detail, and I think that, like that way that, like Wimberley's adaptation, it's like it interpreted into the setting that enhances the original intentions for the audience because the a modern audience is not going to get Italian Renaissance references. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or, like, I guess more accurately, English Renaissance who gesturing towards Italy (laughs) references.
0: (laughs) Well, again, that's why I think this topic in general is so interesting because, I mean, we're talking about plays that are, you know, uh, 400 plus years old. So it's like, what is in Shakespeare's work that makes them so appealing to artists to interpret? And we've mentioned these sort of universal themes. I mean, on its surface, Romeo and Juliet is just a love story, but there's a lot more to it. And I think that's being able to adapt it to a new setting proves the strength of the material in a way. It kind of proves yeah. that there's more to it than just on the surface.
2: I think by picking up on a on a secondary character, it allows Wimberly to pull kind of a background theme more into the foreground. So like the star-crossed Lovers thing isn't as front loaded in Prince of Cats as it is in Romeo and Juliet, but... A theme that I think isn't looked at as much in the original play, but that is really central to this book is how fragile adolescence is and the particular Uh, mm -hmm. fragility of adolescent masculinity, especially compared to what is really kind of a heavy responsibility of adolescent femininity. And I want to call out that I'm saying masculinity and femininity instead of like boys and girls or men and women because people of all genders can and do engage with both masculinity and femininity as concepts. They're not immutable mm-hmm. identities, right? They're And so the interiority of both of them, I think Wimberly depicts here really beautifully and really cracks it open. And then if you go back and read Shakespeare, after you – kind of like untangled that thread that Wimberly pulls out it gives you a whole deeper more textured understanding of those characters like mm-hmm. Tybalt is this kind of aimless floating sort of character but then violence is something that's really kind of a tangible grounding experience for him um like he's much he can engage with people much more easily with violence than with feelings or talking and then you have Juliet who, as a young girl is really contending with the double-edged sword of being sexualized and desired, but then also understanding her own sexuality and desire, which is a very normal adolescent thing. But unfortunately for a lot of teenage girls, being desired carries a lot of baggage and responsibilities that are like really unfair and have serious consequences, like in this case, a lot of murder. <laughs> and so like you can interpret the the character of Juliet in this really feminist way like sh- if you look at the balcony scene she really takes charge of that situation she's like okay look mm-hmm. romeo here's what we're going to do we're going to get married you're going to show up here at this time i'm going to have it all arranged like just do what I say. She arranges the whole dumb faking the death thing. Like Juliet is running this whole show. Uh-huh. And my theory is that she just did it because she didn't want to marry Paris, but we could, that's a whole other show. For this show, <laughs> let's just say that gender, sexuality, violence, and like coming into that responsibility as they relate to adolescence, those are themes in the play but with this new setting i think ron wimberly like really enhances that and pulls at those threads in a way that you maybe wouldn't have seen in the original play without ron wimberly's guidance in this way
0: right yeah that's so interesting uh again this is a book that uh, woefully have not read yet but you're giving it the highest possible recommendation so i will have to uh, track a copy it's of beautiful time, please so. read it okay <laughs> uh Kate, I noticed you have a, a few different adaptations here, and I'm kind of curious because you've kind of broken them up into manga adaptations and Western comics adaptations. I'm kind of curious if you guys mentioned a few of those and the differences you saw in those adaptations.
1: Yeah, I keep finding these Western adaptations in like thrift stores and used bookstores and picking them up. So I, I own a number of Western comic adaptations of Shakespeare at this point. And I've noticed that the Western comics kind of uh, they they cut out a lot of the actual play. Like they they still keep certain lines, they're really recognizable lines, and they keep they keep the major plot points, but there's there's quite a lot of a lot cut. It kind of seems like the Western comics have this this similarity that they're trying to grab readers that maybe don't have that long of of a an attention span <laughs> like myself <laughs> sometimes yeah. um and uh they are like at least the ones that i've read which are Macbeth by gareth hines and hamlet by melina roy and narish kumar they're both like these really realistic art styles um and they're quicker reads and they're more like if you I don't know, it's almost like watching a movie or something, you know, like there's Mm -hmm. not, I don't feel like they've necessarily taken advantage of the things that comics can do, like, um, like the (laughs) Prince of Cats that Tia was talking about with the different like colors and like these are good books to read still, like I still enjoyed revisiting the Shakespeare plays with these two titles, um, but I don't know, I feel like they were also kind of lacking something versus... I've read a couple of different manga classics at this point, and there are a ton of these. These are not just Shakespeare titles. Like I've also read um, like The Count of Monte Cristo, Sense and Sensibility. Um, These are all like this big series of manga classics um, by different creators that keep much more of the story. Like some of them still cut the content. Like. The Count of Monte Cristo does cut out a lot of content but it still gives you all of the beats of the story and all of the characters they just cut out a lot of the the narration <laughs> um uh-huh. but these are I feel like the manga classics are honestly like truer adaptations of the whole story and I don't know I feel like the manga style of comic with their kind of like their overdone emotions sometimes or like uh, mm-hmm. If you read a lot of manga, sometimes people will have like these background conversations that aren't in dialogue boxes. And they're just like this tiny little text that you understand that like these two background characters are speaking, but it's not the focus mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. scene. I don't know. I feel like the, the manga style just kind of really works with getting to the meaning of the story. Like um, Shakespeare, especially has these kind of subtle ways or or the shakespeare way to to say that this is how i feel about something and if you're not used to reading shakespeare sometimes that's kind of hard to be like okay is this person scared or anxious or alarmed or are they just making an observation but in the manga you can really see that oh this person's the the emotion on this person's face is like overdone alarm or sadness or something like that. And I think it actually just really works.
0: That, that's really interesting because there's a couple of things here. I thought I, I want to don't want to miss or, or overlook um, again, we're talking about plays. I mean, Shakespeare wrote these to be performed. So there's something more performative maybe about the manga yes. adaptation, right? It, it makes use of that version of it. Because reading a Shakespeare play is very different than seeing one performed. And then the other thing is we're getting uh, an adaptation a manga that is not just an adaptation of a text, but it's from a different culture that might see things in original text that we don't see in the original Shakespeare work. They're coming to it from a different angle, which yeah. might highlight some things that, you know, other adaptations would miss out on. That's really, really fascinating to me.
1: Yeah. And I have read um, the Hamlet. Uh, adaptation and there are some of the some puns in there too like the hamlet one actually has the entire text so it's a very long book not all of them do that but there are some like puns like sometimes uh like um horatio isn't necessarily immediately in a scene and one of the characters go hey says hey is Horatio here and he says a piece of him and he's like popping out from the side of a panel and you only see part of him and
2: <laughs> Amazing. it was just a- <laughs> yes uh, I loved the pun and that's like such a great because it's not just a I mean p- what puns are are their structural jokes with language but that's a st- like to use it also the structure of comics as a medium to make the pun that's just mm-hmm. like chef's guests.
1: yeah, guess. yeah. I feel like that's something that that the manga is embracing that that the western comics that i had that I've read so far have not necessarily picked up on, but I mean, I don't want to like discount the western adaptations; they're still really good, they're just different
0: sure. yeah that that is interesting I think coming to those plays, the original source text from different angles again talking about comparing comparing two different works that's that's a really interesting way to kind of phrase that. you know I was racking my brain trying to think of any Shakespearean adaptations that I've read and I realized probably the only one I could think of was the uh, Sandman issue from Neil Gaiman's Sandman series. Issue number 19 is literally called "The Midsummer's Night Dream, um, and it is an adaptation of that play. Uh, One that I'm not that familiar with, but again, Shakespeare's works have been adapted and permeated pop culture in a way that I was kind of familiar with the overall, you know, references being made in the story. But what's interesting is that it's maybe more... Faithful than the other ones we've talked about so far because it really becomes a Gaiman, because it's a Neil Gaiman comic, it's about storytelling and the power of storytelling and the role that the poet plays in framing uh, our world. It's all that stuff that he always writes about. And of course, Shakespeare represents kind of the highest aspect of that, where he's again talking about universal themes, inventing language, giving shape to ideas. And for this comic, we're basically set in uh, 1593. Shakespeare's traveling with a small group of actors, and uh, they perform the play for an audience of actual fairies and creatures that are actually in the play, you know, like Puck and a few other characters that are referenced, smaller characters. And as the story goes on, we realize that Morpheus, the King of Dreams from the Sandman series, had asked Shakespeare to write this play as a way of giving the story of these fairies shape. Basically, he didn't want these fairies who were going to be leaving from Earth, leaving Earth for humans at this point. He didn't want their stories to be forgotten or them to be lost to history. So Morpheus asked Shakespeare to write a play about them. And that's essentially what Midsummer's Night Dream is. And there's all these moments where the characters are watching the play and they're commenting, okay, none of these things actually happened, but yet it's true. What kind of magic is this? So it's, again, Gaiman giving a sort of thesis about the power of art and the power of language to give shape to ideas and to permeate and change, change culture. Uh, you know, all the stuff he writes about. So it's, it's an interesting adaptation. There are some funny moments where the actual goblin puck basically puts the actor playing that role to sleep during the intermission and takes over in the production and no one really notices that's it's an actual goblin playing puck at this point. So stuff like that's very fun. Uh, especially as someone like me who's never read the original source or knows that much about it so it's an interesting adaptation uh that's kind of the only one i could think of that i've read so
1: i wanted to talk about something uh called it's it's this book that i picked up it's called my kingdom for a panel a shakespeare anthology and (laughs) It, you reminded me of it because there is a story in this that is the Midsummer's Night's Dream. But really quick, I just wanted to describe this book. It's like this zine-style sure. anthology, so it's not necessarily like the cleanest production um, put together. It kind of looks like some of it was was hand on and scanned, and some of it was done on the computer. It's kind of all over the place. Um, but I picked this up. I want to say I picked this up used. Um, I don't know that that I had necessarily heard of it before, but it is put out by a publisher. So you should be able to find it. Okay. Okay. And these are all like short comics, just a couple of pages, sometimes one page. And they kind of more like pay homage to Shakespeare rather than being like direct adaptations. Um, So the one that I'm that I'm thinking of um, that that you reminded me of is that the, the Midsummer's night's dream is recontextualized as a battle of the bands where there's like drama between the two bands and people are like sure. going back and forth as to which band they're going to play with. <laughs> and um, just like, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Like speaking of bringing those, those common themes into a modern setting, like it really, yeah. I, I was like, why is there a battle of the bands? And then suddenly it was like, <laughs> Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then also one, some of my favorite comics are um, there's like three or four of these in the book where Shakespeare's cat is giving him creative criticism. Like one of them was like, you should treat your woman better. <laughs> and Shakespeare is just like, no, I'll, I think I'll cut off her hands. <laughs> <laughs> um, just critiques like that. Yep. Um, and a lot of these just recontextualize the stories into a different setting or they make um, they make a reference to Will Shakespeare. Like, there are scholars who think that William Shakespeare was actually an, another playwright called Christopher Marlowe. So, one of these mm. comics is 10 year old little William Shakespeare stealing something from Christopher Marlowe. And then they like have a Pokemon battle basically or something. But, <laughs> but it was witty because it referenced this like theory about Shakespeare.
0: Interesting. So. Huh.
1: Some of these stories I do want to say are are more like body horror so they are not all goofy and witty and fun but I enjoyed the entire book like as a whole. Okay. Huh.
0: Interesting. Well, again, I think that it speaks to the um the legacy and adaptation adaptability of Shakespeare's works, the fact that you know, you can still put something in a Battle of the band setting and have it kind of work as the same type of story, right? And I think That's the reason we're still adapting these stories to this point. They kind of, like I said, speak to these universal themes. I think the Gaiman story is very interesting because it becomes about magic and storytelling and the ability to give uh, words to ideas. You know, again, the idea of something, fiction can in some ways capture the truth better than the actual facts can. And I think using Shakespeare as the example of that just makes sense given the context which Gaiman is writing. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting to go back and reread that issue. Sandman is something I I go back and forth on how much I actually enjoy it, but I did enjoy that issue quite a bit when I reread it. So
1: I kind of feel the same way about Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Well, that's the thing. Uh, I, again, not having read the original source or seen a lot of the plays, the adaptations are almost more interesting to me, right? Let me see it through a different lens we'll bring out those things that you're saying, Teal, we'll bring out those those subtexts that are maybe get lost in a lot of more straight adaptations of it.
2: Yeah, you know, it's just like there's only so much that you're going to be able to excavate from something as a standalone. You need sometimes to push against something else, if that makes sense, yeah. you know? For sure. Um, and so the having a, an interpretation, it's, it just kind of like is an opportunity for the spotlight to kind of go somewhere else.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, and there is an art to an adaptation, like there could be good or bad adaptations, but I think the good ones are the ones that actually do that, that push the text in different directions, push those themes forward and kind of like, uh, pick apart things that you wouldn't see in the original text right as readily. Right, And they give it new life. I mean, the reason we're still talking about these plays you know four centuries later is that there's still some truth to them. You know, there's still something meaningful in these plays that we can find through these different adaptations. So
1: I really enjoy that a lot of these have kind of focused on side characters, like characters that have not necessarily been given time on the stage. Literally, <laughs> um, <laughs> to really tell their stories or like give you what their motivations were. Like sometimes in Shakespeare, some of the side characters do things that you really don't understand why. Um, so mm-hmm. seeing what people come up with, creator, what creators come up with to give them motivation is really interesting.
0: There, yeah, there is a sort of funny moment in the the Sandman adaptation where uh, Puck the The character who kind of takes over for the actor, he puts the rest of the acting troupe to sleep so that the fairies can kind of like disappear and it'll all be a dream to the actors when they wake up. But the rest of the sort of fictional characters, these fairies, they all leave to go to another realm and he stays behind. And there's like a footnote in the, the comics, like this character was never heard from again or his whereabouts are unknown. <laughs> so it's like he stuck around. So there's still this mischievous imp running around, you know, uh, as far as we know.
2: Which is very much Puck's like... Character in the play too, so it's right. definitely yeah. it's it's exactly kind of what we're saying. It's like, it's just sort of um, filling in the gaps. It's not necessarily going against the canon. It's sort of taking the evidence from the canon of like, who are these characters? What is their deal? And then sort of speculating. It's fan fiction, speculative fiction. Yeah, <laughs> well,
0: there we go. Is all of, uh, the history of English literature just Shakespeare fan fiction? Can we Absolutely, say that? I yes. mean, I think that you could even
2: <laughs> take it back to like you know the Greeks, right? Like, there's only so oh, sure, many, yeah. there's only so many themes of human existence, right? And so everything's pretty much just a variation on you know five themes.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's there's no new ideas, but you can at least uh, show them in new ways and give them new uh, direction.
0: Yeah, and that, that's, that's a good way to sum it up, I think, and I think. Uh, speaking personally, I think comics are the best way to do that. So that's my favorite medium. So I'm glad we took a chance to kind of unpack the, uh, the abilities of comics to adapt Shakespeare and kind of, uh, push the old bard in different directions as it were. Yeah.
2: I think it also speaks to like, who does Shakespeare belong to? Um, you know, Paul, at the top of the topic, you, you talked about Shakespeare being, you know, kind of like one of the greatest in the Western, Western canon and English literature. And, um, you know, there's definitely like a, a mindset of people out there when they think about culture who have like really hard lined ideas about what is high and low culture and who belongs where and like who is allowed to engage with what. And so um, I mean, especially something like Prince of cats that's like, Hey, what if we did this with like, you know, black culture, for example, Um, that kind of, I think is reminding people Like, hey, actually, these characters and themes and ideas belong to everyone. And there's no such thing as high and low culture. Like, and comics are not like, you know, some trash medium for kids, but they actually are like a really beautiful art form. And basically, just like, get over yourself. It's all good.
0: (laughs) exactly yeah that's a nice way to sum it up too that's the, the idea that that's we we're talking about universal themes they truly are universal throughout time different cultures and different medium so yeah and th- all these adaptations i think we're talking about come from a place of respect and admiration for that the adaptability of the source text so yeah yeah I, I have to do more uh shakespearean adaptation reading at this point i guess i have a few things to add to my list now after this conversation so thanks
1: Yeah, I I picked up a a whole lot of them from the library, and I only got (laughs) through a few. So I've got a lot more that I'll be reading in the next couple of weeks.
0: Yeah, there's no shortage out there. So if you have any other ones that maybe we missed or ones that aren't on our radar, please let us know. Um, I'm very curious to see what else is out there. So, uh, yeah, I think that does it for our topic. Unless anybody has any final thoughts before we wrap it up here.
1: It's all fan fiction, and I love it.
0: (laughs) There we go. Uh, that's a possible topic, a possible episode title. It's all <laughs> fan fiction. Um, so yeah, thanks for uh, uh, talking about Shakespeare with me today. Uh, next week, be sure to tune in to hear Mike, Danny, and Renee talking about some of their little-known superhero favorites. You know, they know we love the X Men and Batman, but what other characters do they enjoy? So you know, hear them talk about that next week. Uh, until then, you can find the show and all of us on the on the internet. Uh, The show is at IRCB Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. You can also check out our Discord chat to listen to episodes live. We're also on Goodreads. We just passed 1,000 members on our Goodreads group. That's so cool. So you can find us all over there as well. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB Podcast for exclusive audio, all sorts of other goodies. Infinity Shred is the best band in the known universe and do all of our music. Uh, Xander can see straight into your soul and he's not pleased. Uh, thank you (laughs) Tia thank you Kate Uh, thank you Mike for letting me sit in and host thank you everyone for listening until next time comics are good and so are you